I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to our text for this Lord's Day, which is 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 5. And there we read, And this they did, not as we hoped, but first gave their own selves to the Lord and unto us by the will of God. Over many sermons now, we have considered both a scriptural and a historical defense of national covenanting and particularly the descending obligation of the solemn league and covenant to all of the national, ecclesiastical, and familial posterity in succeeding generations. We continue this Lord's Day with a question that should be addressed as we draw near to the conclusion of this series. And that question might be framed in this way. Most of the evidence gleaned from Scripture to defend national covenanting has come from the Old Testament. Is the New Testament completely silent on this subject, or is there also evidence that might be presented in defense of national covenanting from the New Testament? Let me first state that we must always be extremely careful that we do not erect some false dichotomy between the moral law of God revealed in the Old Testament and the continuation of that same moral law of God into the New Testament even if there is no explicit reiteration of a particular moral law in the New Testament. The moral nature and universal application of the Ten Commandments to all people, Jews and Gentiles alike, at all times is surely taught by Christ and the apostles in the New Testament. If a commandment, dear ones, is moral, we do not have to find it repeated in the New Testament in order to find warrant for its continued obligation upon the moral person of individuals, families, churches, and nations. For just as the moral nature of God cannot contradict another aspect of God's moral nature. Just as the moral nature of God is one and cannot be divided, and just as the moral nature of God is the same, whether in the Old Testament or in the New Testament, so likewise, all of God's moral law as summarized in the New Testament, is one and cannot be divided, cannot contradict itself, and none of it, as summarized in the Ten Commandments, can be abolished. The moral law of God 
continues in unabated continuity from the Old into the New Testament. The moral law of God, dear ones, cannot cease any more than the moral nature of God can cease. One example, just because bestiality is not specifically condemned in the New Testament as it is in the Old Testament, where we find that to be the case in Leviticus 18.23, is no warrant for its lawful practice in the New Testament. The Lord Jesus makes it very clear that he did not come to destroy the moral law, but rather came to fulfill it. That is, to make it full by his own perfect obedience of the moral law on behalf of his people. And by undergirding that same moral law through his own authoritative instruction, of people living at that time and time to come in the whole realm of what the moral law means and how we are to follow God's moral law. In Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 19, the Lord Jesus, again, makes it very, very clear that this is the case, that he did not come to annul, repeal, or do away with the moral law of God. The Lord Jesus says, Think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. That is, make it full. For verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law till all be fulfilled. Now, notice what the Lord Jesus says with regard to those who minimize, restrict, limit, or seek to abolish God's moral law as it was taught in the Old Testament and do so in the New Testament. Jesus says in verse 19, Whosoever therefore shall break one of these least commandments and shall teach men so he shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whosoever shall do and teach them, the same shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Likewise, you may look at Matthew 15, verses 3 through 6 and verse 9, where the moral law of God in relationship to honoring one's parents, the fifth commandment and the moral law of God in relationship to worship the second commandment are upheld by the Lord Jesus Christ the apostles of Christ likewise clearly teach the abiding obligation of God's moral law as found in the ten commandments upon both Jews and Gentiles in the New Testament era The Apostle Paul says that all, the whole world, are guilty before God. Jews and Gentiles alike are guilty before God because all have broken his moral law. In Romans 3.19, he likewise says that we do not 
seek to annul the law, we rather establish God's moral law. In Romans 3.31, James speaks of the moral law of God, both the first table and the second table as a unit, the moral law of God as being the perfect law of liberty. The perfect law of liberty to us who are saved by Jesus Christ. Because the moral law of God doesn't, once we are saved, we're not justified by the law of God, but we do, having been justified, having received of His Spirit, we learn how to walk in liberty by walking according to God's commandments as laid out for us in His law. To walk contrary to God's commandments is, according to the Lord and the Holy Spirit and the Word of God, bondage. It is therefore called the perfect law of liberty. In James chapter 2, verses 8 through 12, and particularly verse 10, we find there again, James says that if we offend in one point of the moral law of God, we're guilty of having broken all. It's a unit. One cohesive unit. And thereby still binding upon God's people and upon those who are not God's people, Jews and Gentiles alike. Covenanting with God, dear ones, whether by an individual, by a family, by a church, or by a nation, is a solemn religious act. It's a religious act. As such, it is not a part of the judicial law of the Old Testament, which related in a peculiar way to the civil law of Israel as distinct from Gentile nations. Nor is covenanting with God distinctly a part of the ceremonial law, for covenanting with God, dear ones, is summarized in the third commandment of God's moral law. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. In other words, don't covenant with God or use his name in an oath falsely by refusing to fulfill what you have covenanted. And the rest of that commandment proceeds, For the Lord will not hold him guiltless that taketh his name in vain. Exodus 20, verse 7. Thus, even if national covenanting with God has no explicit mention in the New Testament, we cannot and we must not conclude on that basis that it is merely for Israel in the Old Testament. For if covenanting with God, whether individual, familial, ecclesiastical, or national, is a part of the moral law of God, as revealed in the Old Testament, it must necessarily continue with unabated continuity into the New Testament era, even if no specific mention is made of it in the New Testament. A second reason why national covenanting is warranted presently is because it is prophesied 
by divine inspiration to occur in the New Testament era with God's clear approbation and approval during the millennial reign of Christ from his throne in heaven over all the earth. As we see will be the case when Egypt will engage in a national covenant with God and Assyria will do so as well. Two of the greatest, most fierce enemies of Israel in the Old Testament will become covenanted nations before and with God. And we find that in Isaiah 19, verses 18 through 25. And since I have devoted a previous sermon to this text in Isaiah 19, I'll not further comment on it at this time. However, other Old Testament passages likewise prophesy of the same national reformation that Christ will bring to pass in that millennial period that is yet to come in all of the earth in which nations and their national representatives will own God by way of covenant to be their God. In Zechariah chapter 2, verse 11, we read the following prophecy. And many nations shall be joined to the Lord in that day and shall be my people and I will dwell in the midst of thee and thou shalt know that the Lord of hosts hath sent me unto thee. But concerning this prophecy of the future, many nations shall be joined to the Lord. How joined? Covenantally. As one moral person, a nation joined unto the Lord by way of covenant because the very next phrase says, and shall be my people. And we've looked at that phrase. That is a unique, special phrase that is used, first of all, with regard to Israel. They are my people and I am their God. How? By way of covenant. And many nations will yet be joined to the Lord and shall be my people, joined by covenant unto the Lord. Gentile nations in this millennial period. Although prophecies like this are found in the Old Testament, dear ones, they clearly relate to what Christ shall accomplish upon the earth in the future during His glorious millennial reign from heaven. For without controversy, we have never seen many nations of the earth swear as nations through their national representatives and by national covenants to be God's people. But that is prophesied to occur in the New Testament era and it will come to pass by the promise and by the power of Christ. And very soon we pray. A third reason why national covenanting is warranted in the New Testament era is because it is assumed by New Testament passages that condemn 
covenant breaking as an abominable sin committed against God. For example, in Romans 131, we find there a condemnation of covenant breakers. In 1 Timothy 1.10, there it speaks of perjurers, those who forswear, who perjure themselves with regard to covenants, lawful covenants that have been made. Dear ones, if it is an abominable sin for one individual as a moral person to refuse to keep covenant with God, how much more aggravated is, is this sin when an entire nation as a moral person refuses to keep covenant with God? Likewise, we might say, if it is an abominable sin for one individual as a moral person to commit murder... How much more aggravated is this sin when a whole nation, as a moral person, commits murder against another nation by way of an unjust war and slaughtering hundreds of thousands, possibly millions of people? Dear ones, covenant breaking is only magnified and aggravated when a whole nation of individuals and their national representatives commit this heinous sin. And a fourth reason why national covenanting is warranted in the New Testament era is because it is likewise assumed in a passage like 2 Corinthians 8.5 which directly deals with ecclesiastical covenanting among several Churches, Gentile churches in the Roman province of Macedonia. I'm not saying there weren't Jews in these churches, but they were, they were churches in Gentile nations. Let us read the text once again from 2 Corinthians 8.5. And this they did not as we hoped, but first gave their own selves to the Lord and unto us by the will of God. Well, the question naturally arises at this point as to how any form of covenanting can be derived from the words of our text. Where does it clearly say in this text that these churches covenanted with the Lord? Well, let us look closely at the words we find here for the answer to that question. First, note the context in which this verse occurs. Paul labored to emphasize in the various Gentile churches in which he ministered their duty of love and gratitude which they not only owed to God for His gracious redemption, but also the duty and gratitude these Gentile churches owed to the Jewish churches in Judea who had suffered much trial and tribulation for the faith, but who nevertheless commissioned apostles and ministers 
to take the gospel to the Gentiles. Thus, trial, tribulation, persecution are not reasons, dear ones, to forego sending and supporting faithful ministers. Even when these churches of Judea and Jerusalem suffered, they did not forget the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ that was to be proclaimed by his ministers to the ends of the earth. So likewise, let not our own financial trials or persecution for the cause of Christ lead us to conclude that we can do nothing at all to promote the gospel and the crown rights of Jesus Christ. We may not be able to to give what we would like to give to the support of the ministry, but we can. And like the Judean churches, we must continue to promote the kingdom of Christ as we are able in any way that we can. In fact, our love for Christ and for his truth, I submit to you, is manifested by our desire and willingness to support with our prayers and gifts the faithful ministry of Jesus Christ, even when we can only give a very small proportion to the work of of the Lord, a very small proportion to what we would like to be able to give to the work of the Lord. Paul clearly teaches that those churches in Macedonia and elsewhere throughout the Roman Empire that had benefited spiritually from the churches in Jerusalem were indebted to benefit financially the same churches in Jerusalem. Paul says in Romans 15.27, For if the Gentiles have been made partakers of their spiritual things, that is, the Jews' spiritual things, their duty, that is, the duty of the Gentiles, is also to minister unto them, that is, the Jews, the Jewish churches, in carnal things. Thus Paul had enjoined this duty of gathering collections for the poor saints in Jerusalem in his first letter to the Corinthians, as we see in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verses 1 through 2. Now it would appear the, the church of Corinth had neglected this duty. And so Paul repeats this injunction in his second letter to the Corinthians. They had not followed through with what they said they would do and what they were urged to do. They had not followed through with it. And so Paul spends actually two chapters in 2 Corinthians, chapters 8 and 9, talking about this very issue. In order to exercise and stretch the Corinthians to greater diligence and liberality in this matter of giving, Paul appeals to the example of the Macedonian churches which included at least the churches in Philippi, Thessalonica, and Berea. Note the words of Paul as found in 2 Corinthians 8, verses 1-4 through in this respect. We find these words with regard to the churches in Macedonia and their, their situation, their context that they were in as they offered their gifts 
their financial gifts to Paul to carry to the saints in Jerusalem. Moreover, brethren, we do you to wit of the grace of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia, how that in a great trial of affliction, the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded unto the riches of their liberality. For to their power I bear record, yea, and beyond their power they were willing of themselves, praying us with much entreaty that we would receive the gift and take upon us the fellowship of the ministering to the saints. You see, dear ones, even in spite of their own trials, the Macedonian churches were so thankful so grateful at having received the grace of God through the sending forth of faithful ministers to them that they pleaded with Paul and the other apostles to allow them to send their gift to the poor saints in Jerusalem. Beloved, we truly test the quality of our giving when we give not from our mere abundance, but even from our poverty, from our affliction, and from our trial. Not out of our strength, but even at times out of our weakness. Not when it is simply easy to give, but even in those times when it is difficult to give. Second, as we move from a consideration of the context in which our text occurs, note the reasons why the words of Paul should be understood to refer to ecclesiastical covenanting in 2 Corinthians 8.5. Again, that verse says, And this they did, not as we hoped, but first gave their own selves to the Lord and unto us by the will of God. The first reason why the words of Paul should be understood to refer to ecclesiastical covenanting is because this giving of themselves to the Lord was not a giving as Paul and his associates had expected. In other words, this giving of themselves to the Lord was not an ordinary duty, but an extraordinary duty. You see, an ordinary duty of giving themselves to the Lord would have been accomplished through the ordinary ordinances of submitting to Christ, whether in prayer or hearing the word preached. That would have been giving oneself to the Lord as we do in prayer and hearing the word preached. Or by giving themselves to God in their public professions of faith or in their baptisms. Or in the Lord's Supper, all of those would have been more ordinary ways of giving oneself to the Lord. All these expressions of giving oneself to the Lord that I just mentioned would certainly have been ordinary duties. Paul would have expected, he would have expected these things to occur and would have expected the churches of, in Macedonia to perform them. But Paul here 
declares that these churches of Macedonia gave themselves to the Lord in a manner that he had not expected. By means, therefore, of an extraordinary ordinance rather than an ordinary ordinance. Now, that is certainly true. Extraordinary ordinance is certainly true. A voluntary covenanting with God at particular times in God's providence when the occasion calls for it. Thus, I would submit that the only ordinance that is both extraordinary and is one in which we voluntarily give ourselves to the Lord as His people because of His gracious gift of Christ to us is that of covenanting with God. Ecclesiastical covenanting, dear ones, is also the only extraordinary ordinance in which the churches of Macedonia could collectively, as one moral person, give themselves not only to God, but unto Paul and the other apostles as well. The second reason why the words of Paul should be understood to refer to ecclesiastical covenanting is because this giving of themselves cannot refer to merely devoting their financial gifts to God or to Paul for the ministry of the poor saints in Jerusalem. Why is that the case? Why can't this giving themselves to God, referred to their offering their financial gifts to the Lord. Well, because the giving of themselves to the Lord that is spoken of here in 2 Corinthians 8.5 is clearly distinguished from the giving of their financial gifts to the Lord in 2 Corinthians 8.4. Paul states in 2 Corinthians 8.4 that the churches of Macedonia pleaded with Paul to allow them to give their financial gifts to the Lord. And 2 Corinthians 8.5 begins with these words, and this they did. They did give their financial gifts to Paul and his associates. The churches of Macedonia actually did that. However, the Macedonian churches gave in an unexpected way, for Paul says, not as we hoped. And he goes on to say, but first gave themselves to the Lord. In other words, Paul says, before they gave their financial gift to the Lord, they first gave themselves to the Lord clearly distinguishing the one from the other. And what could such a giving to the Lord be? That is an extraordinary ordinance, but a covenanting with God to be his faithful people in seeking to minister to the needs of the poor saints in Jerusalem. These churches of Macedonia did not simply want to empty their pockets. Didn't want to just write out a check, as it were, and just send it. And say, well, that, that duty's done. That's finished. Now I can breathe 
easily. I've done what I was obligated to do. No, that wasn't the attitude that they had. They wanted their financial giving in their moment of extreme trial and persecution to be an outward expression of their faith, love, and gratitude in first giving themselves by way of covenant to their covenant God who in Christ became utterly poor in order to make them infinitely and eternally rich. As we read later on in 2 Corinthians 8-9 concerning Christ, For ye know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that ye through his poverty might be rich. This I would submit, or thus I would submit that the only extraordinary ordinance that might be distinguished from financial giving in this context and may be described as giving themselves to the Lord is that of ecclesiastical covenanting with God. The third reason why the words of Paul should be understood to refer to ecclesiastical covenanting is because Paul states that this giving of themselves to God was, quote, unquote, by the will of God in 2 Corinthians 8.5. By the will of God. That phrase simply means that these churches of Macedonia found this giving of themselves to God to be according to the revealed will of God as found in the Old Testament Scriptures. Now, where do we find it revealed in the Scripture and in the Old Testament Scriptures that the church as well as the nation should voluntarily engage itself at various times in God's providence to be His covenanted people in trusting Him, loving Him, and obeying Him for the wonders of the covenant of grace bestowed upon such unworthy and undeserving sinners. Clearly, ecclesiastical and national covenanting were revealed in the Old Testament Testament Scriptures as we have demonstrated in previous sermons. The church, both the church and the nation of Israel, covenanted with God in Deuteronomy chapter 29, verses 10 through 15. Both the church and the nation as a whole covenant with God at the time of Jehoiada, the high priest, in 2 Kings 11, verses 17 through 20. Both the church and the nation as a whole covenanted with Josiah, king of Judah, covenanted with God in 2 Chronicles 34, verses 29 through 32. And likewise with Nehemiah in Nehemiah 9.38 and many other places in the Old Testament. Consider also this fact that it was the church of Berea, which was one of the churches of Macedonia that gave themselves to the Lord in 2 Corinthians 8.5, that is especially 
noted by the Holy Spirit to have been a church filled with those who diligently, earnestly, studiously searched the Old Testament Scriptures when Paul was preaching to them to compare what Paul was saying with the Old Testament Scriptures. And they are commended for having done so in Acts 17.11. Commended by the Holy Spirit for having done so. No doubt in their diligent search of the Old Testament Scriptures, they were led by the Holy Spirit to see the duty of giving themselves to the Lord by way of national and ecclesiastical covenanting as an expression of their faith, love, and new obedience to Christ. Thus, these churches of Macedonia were simply following the revealed will of God from the Old Testament Scriptures in their ecclesiastical covenanting. The fourth reason why the words of Paul should be understood to refer to ecclesiastical covenanting is because this giving of themselves to God is not that of a few people A few individuals here or there scattered amongst these congregations, one here, one there. It's not that kind of a situation at all. But rather, the covenanting that goes on is the covenanting of three entire churches together, uniting together, like three separate nations, uniting together into a covenant, a unified covenant, binding themselves together in covenanting with God. Social covenanting. Doing so collectively as one moral person. To whom do the words in 2 Corinthians 8.5 refer, but first gave their own selves? To whom do those words refer? Gave their own selves. Well, the answer is clearly those words refer to the churches of Macedonia. For we read in chapter 8, verse 1, these words of Paul. Moreover, brethren, we do you to wit of the grace of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia. Not simply an individual here or an individual there, but upon the churches, all the churches of Macedonia. Furthermore, uh, when we continue into verse 2, 2 Corinthians 8, 2, it was likewise to these same churches of Macedonia that Paul refers when he mentions their joy. Whose joy? The churches of Macedonia. Their joy. Their deep poverty. Whose deep poverty? Well, those churches. Their liberality. Whose liberality? Those churches. And then in 2 Corinthians 8.3, Paul declares concerning these same churches of Macedonia that they were, quote, willing of themselves to give beyond their own power. Who are the, themselves? Well, it's, again, contextually the same uh, antecedent, the churches of Macedonia. And then when we come to 2 Corinthians 8.4, it was these same churches of Macedonia that prayed that Paul and company would receive their financial gift for the saints in Jerusalem. Thus, there can be no doubt whatsoever that it was these same several churches of Macedonia that first gave their own selves to the Lord. 
collectively in an ecclesiastical covenant to the Lord. And it should be noted, dear ones, it should be observed that these churches of Macedonia were filled with Gentiles as well as with Jews and lived in a Roman province and a Gentile nation. Thus, the extraordinary duty of ecclesiastical covenanting pertains not only to the Jewish church of the Old Testament, but also to the Gentile church of the New Testament. Why? Because covenanting with God, whether it be individual, familial, ecclesiastical, or national, is a part of the moral law of God, as summarized in the third commandment, and not a judicial or ceremonial law that pertains to Israel alone. The fifth reason, the fifth and final reason, why the words of Paul should be understood to refer to ecclesiastical covenanting is because the act and language of giving oneself to God as we see in 2 Corinthians 8.5 is also taught in the Old Testament as an essential part of national and ecclesiastical covenanting. In national and ecclesiastical covenanting with God we acknowledge that God has first given himself unto us to be our God. He has taken the initiative in the covenant of grace. He has sent his Son and called us unto himself and applied the redemption of Christ unto us. He has given us life. Jesus Christ has fulfilled all righteousness for his elect having been chosen from the foundation of the world in Christ Jesus. He takes the initiative. But we see that the people of God in response, out of love and gratitude to God, own God to be their God and declare that they are the people of God by way of covenanting. And this they did in the Old Testament, as we see. Church and nation as a whole did so in Exodus 19.5. They acknowledged God to be their God and, and, and also God calls them his people. Likewise, we see with Gentile nations the same to be the case in Isaiah 19.18-25 where that phrase, my people, occurs with regard to Gentile nations. And as we saw earlier in Zechariah 2.11, that same phrase, many nations will be joined to the Lord in that day and shall be my people. In fact, dear ones, when the nation and the church of Israel covenanted with God under Hezekiah, we read that the people were commanded, yield yourselves unto the Lord. In Second Chronicles 30 verse 8. That's very close to give yourselves as the Corinthians did in, or as the Macedonians did in 2 Corinthians 8.5. They gave themselves unto the Lord. Here Hezekiah covenants with the Lord and it says and he says yield yourselves unto the Lord. 
This yielding themselves to the Lord as God's people was outwardly expressed, dear ones. Listen closely. It was outwardly expressed by giving and extending the hand toward the God whose throne is in heaven. For that is the literal meaning of the word yield in 2 Chronicles 30, verse 8, in the Hebrew language, when it says they yielded to the Lord, literally, to give the hand. To give the hand. As you have time, you may also want to consider other passages of Scripture in the Old Testament that speak of yielding the hand as an act of submission and covenanting, whether in covenant with God or whether in covenant with man. For example, some of the passages I would encourage you uh, when you have the opportunity to look up would be these. First Chronicles 29:24, Ezra 10:19, Psalm 44:17 and 20 through 21. That is verses 20 through 21. Psalm 68, 31. Psalm 144, verses 8 and 11. Lamentations 5, verse 6. And Ezekiel 17, verse 18. Thus, the words used by Paul in 2 Corinthians 8.5 perfectly comport with the words and meaning of national and ecclesiastical covenanting as is seen in the Old Testament as well with covenants of the Old Testament. We see that they were conveyed those covenants made with the, God, with the Lord were conveyed, were expressed by the lifting up, the stretching out of the hand as an indication that they were yielding, giving themselves to the Lord as his people. Thus, in national and ecclesiastical covenanting, dear ones, we give ourselves or present ourselves or yield ourselves to the Lord as His people to trust Him, love Him, and obey Him in response to His prior covenant love and mercy in Christ Jesus shown to us who deserve His everlasting wrath and condemnation for our many, many sins committed against Him. Now, if it is objected that this was no national covenant, but was rather an ecclesiastical covenant on the part of the Macedonian churches. And therefore, we still have no warrant for national covenanting in the New Testament. That is the way the objection would likely run. It might well be responded that the very same moral reason that warrants churches collectively as one moral person to engage themselves in giving themselves by way of an ecclesiastical covenant to the Lord as an act of faith and love and obedience likewise warrants nations collectively to do the same. For if the moral warrant, listen closely, for if the moral warrant for an ecclesiastical covenant with God by Christian churches, the Christian churches of Macedonia living in a Gentile nation was drawn from the pages of the Old Testament scriptures. 
What moral reason would prevent the same moral warrant from the pages of the Old Testament scriptures being applied to a national covenant with God by Christian nations in a Gentile nation? Or in a, gen- in, in a Gentile setting? For the warrant in both cases, whether ecclesiastical or national, is moral based upon the third commandment and not judicial and not ceremonial. And the warrant in both cases is drawn from the many moral examples of Israel covenanting as not only a church but as a nation. And so because the Macedonian churches found themselves not in a national setting where they could apply that moral principle, but they did find a setting in which they could apply the ecclesiastical principle of the church of Israel. They did what they could do. Now, if a Gentile nation covenants with the Lord, wouldn't it go to exactly the same passages as the Macedonian churches did? to find warrant for ecclesiastical covenant? Wouldn't they simply apply the national aspects of of those moral examples and the moral law of God to their situation? Of course they would. I would submit, therefore, that simply because there were no Christian nations at that time, that is, at the time that Paul wrote the letter of 2 Corinthians, but only Christian churches is no reason at all to conclude that the same moral principles used by the churches of Macedonia do not apply to Gentile Christian nations. When God in his amazing providence brings this gospel and reformation to bear upon Gentile nations. In fact, I would be so bold as to declare that to do otherwise is to condemn the very practice of the churches of Macedonia whom Paul, by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, commends in Acts 17.11. For they were simply applying the moral law of God as contained in the Old Testament to their own ecclesiastical circumstances. If we would likewise be commended by the Lord, we must as a nation apply the same moral law of God to our national circumstances by way of owning and fulfilling the solemn league and covenant of our covenanted forefathers. Oh, dear ones, in conclusion, what a blessed joy to give ourselves by way of covenant unto the Lord as his people to trust him, love him, and obey him. And that is what our our faithful forefathers have done for themselves and for us as their posterity in the solemn league and covenant. We acknowledge that God has graciously given himself to unworthy sinners like us in covenant love and in covenant grace to be our God and Savior through Jesus Christ our Lord. And we also acknowledge that such a divine act of covenant love and mercy calls forth from us as a people to give ourselves and to yield ourselves to him as his people to trust him and love him and obey his good commandments as a church and as a nation. May all of us who are 
the familial, ecclesiastical, and national posterity of England and Ireland and Scotland take up in faith and love our solemn league and covenant with the Lord to be the people of God in both word and in deed. Let us stand in prayer at this time. Our gracious God and Father, humble our hearts before Thee. Lord, renew within us and work within us, O God, both to will and to do Thy good pleasure. To be like the churches of Macedonia, small as we may be, but, O God, may we have the same fervor, desire, same gracious affections, love, faith, and obedience. Stir up within us, O God, to renew our covenants with Thee, to be a faithful people. That, Lord, uh, Thou would likewise stir up the hearts through the preaching of the gospel, through, Lord, uh, writing, uh, through internet sites, through uh, publishing, through all these means, God, available at this time, stir up the hearts of thy people in this nation to acknowledge, Lord, that we have fallen far from our covenanted duties and responsibilities. We have sinned grievously. We have disowned that covenant. We have neglected. We have forgotten it. Forgive us, our Lord and our God, and cause us to walk therein and to see that indeed the example of the churches of Macedonia are not only an example to us as a church, but an example to us as a nation for what they did at that time in covenanting with thee. They did on the basis of thy moral law and thy commandments and the moral example of thy church and nation of Israel and the prophecies promised to Gentile nations in the Old Testament. We pray, our Lord, that Thou would hear our prayer, that Thou would, uh, would uh, draw us, Lord, unto Thee, that we would be a people who are continually yielding ourselves to Thee, giving ourselves to Thee, presenting our, ourselves unto Thee, that Thou might use us that thou might promote thy kingdom. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.